stands out for another reason. Forty years ago, I married my sweetheart. And uh, today is our 40th anniversary. Please take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning. And what we want to focus on is peaceful thinking. I had the joy of watching my grandkids for a couple of weeks, and I also have the joy of going home tomorrow. Getting some peace and quiet. Whether it's kids or grandkids, have you ever noticed that some of their arguments are just so unimportant? Who got the larger portion at dinner? Whether or not you indeed are infringing on their personal bubble in the back seat of the car, is he or is he not touching me? You know, those are all questions that seem pivotal to a child. But as an adult, you look and you think, man, why are you worried about that? That is so unimportant. Why in the world are you even arguing about this? This makes no sense. There's no point to the argument. There's no point to your concern. And as I think about the things that we worry about so often, as adults, I wonder if our Heavenly Father doesn't look at us and think the same thing. Why are you worried about that? Why are you arguing about that? Why are you concerned about that? Trust me. As we come to Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, the Apostle Paul talks about peace that we should have. Peaceful thinking that needs to transform our minds, and ultimately that will change our lives. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning as we look at this text. Now the text begins with verse 1, and really verse 1 could go with the third chapter. And very simply, Paul brings out this thought, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The call is to stand firm. And it harkens back to what Paul has been saying for three chapters, but brings to a crescendo right at the end of that third chapter where he talks about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he reminds us that our bodies are going to be transformed into like his glorious body, and that he will subject all things to himself. The reminder is this, Jesus is coming again. This world will be radically changed. He will be the sovereign Lord over all, inexperienced by all. And we have that to look forward to. That's the big picture. That's what we're to remember. We are to look to heavenly things and remember who in heaven is in charge. And then we're to trust in that and rest in that. But then, as we come to this text, we find that there's an issue at the church at Philippi. And what we see first as we look at this text is, as we stand firm, there's an important consideration. And that is, we need to promote peace outwardly. Now, through our little mini-series that we've done, we've seen the importance 
of having minds that are transformed by God as God renews our thinking. We've also seen the importance of the eternal perspective where I look at the things above rather than the things of this earth. And what I find as we see God transform our minds, as we see our thinking changed to looking to the things above, that brings about peace in my relationship with other people, other believers, my family. All of those things get put into perspective when I really grasp who I am in Christ Jesus and what the big picture is as far as what God is doing. Now here, the Apostle Paul writes initially to two women who were having a spat in the church at Philippi. And what he's reminding them, and this is recorded in the eternal word of God, so he is also reminding us that we're to put aside differences with other believers. I've been a pastor for 38 years, 25 years in the same church. And something I've seen is believers, at times, don't get along. They lose perspective. They forget the big picture. They have every intention of coming together and working together and serving in the work of the Lord. But somehow, personalities begin to clash and there are flare-ups, there are differences, there are disagreements. And as a result, the work of the Lord that they've set their hearts on doing suffers. Such was the case with two women that are mentioned in this text. Notice verse 2, it says this, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now agreeing in the Lord means this, I set aside my preferences and my differences, and I see what is truly important, the work of the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That needs to be the big picture. And if we begin to argue over style of ministry, over approach to ministry, over boundaries in ministry, hey, you're stepping into my area of ministry, don't do that. We're thinking like a child and not like a mature believer who looks and says, I'm to agree with other believers in the Lord. This is what Paul was calling these two women to do. We're human. We're going to have those differences. But our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ is to make sure that we have as our priority the work of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, and that everything else is secondary. So look at what Paul goes on to say in the third verse. What he's saying to these women is this, prioritize in light of the gospel. Look at this third verse with me. He says this, yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement. Now, as the Apostle Paul is describing these women, he isn't describing troublemakers. He's not describing false teachers. He's describing two women who labored side by side with him as he did the work of ministry in the church at Philippi. But a problem had come. The women, as I said earlier, 
lost perspective. Sometimes when we do ministry, isn't it easy to become so consumed in the success of our ministry and to establish boundaries around that ministry and to take it and squeeze it tight and hold on to it and then clash with, and I hate to even use this term, a competing ministry. Listen, we're all doing the work of the Lord. When we're all doing the work of the Lord, there's no such thing as a competing ministry. We're in it together. And so what the Word of God is telling these women to do, after it says agree, it, it, it describes how they had worked together and how the church body was to come alongside them and help these women to get through this rough patch. Something I've discovered in ministry is this. We take the ministry that we serve God with and we hold it with an open hand. Where God seeks to change, where God seeks to redirect, where God seeks to replace us, we look at those opportunities and we say, this ministry belongs to God and not to me. And we let God do his work through us, not in spite of us. And look at what this third verse goes on to say. These women labored side by side with Paul and the rest of his fellow workers. And then look at this last part, this last phrase, of the third verse in your ESV Bible, whose names are written in the book of life. You know, a perspective that's so important for us to have about the believers who are sitting in those seats right next to you. Their names are written in the book of life. There's a bigger picture here. It's not all about what goes on right here, right now, in the moment. We're fellow workers on our journey to be with the Lord. And every believer around me has value as one whose name is written in the book of life. When you're really frustrated with somebody, it's tough to be frustrated with them when you look at them and say, you're a fellow believer whose name is written in the book of life. We focus on our issues and our problems rather than focusing on the Lord and his people. And as a result, the work of the Lord can suffer. Now, why did Paul write this to these two women? He's in prison, miles away from Philippi. Why did he write it? Because of his love for the church. He wanted to see the church at Philippi succeed, and he saw this disagreement between faithful servants as a potential to bring about greater disagreement within the church. Their loss of perspective could become contagious and draw others into that loss of perspective. But then the Word of God continues, and as we come to verse 4, we find that not only are we to pursue outward peace, but in verse 4 we see that we are to pursue peace inwardly. And that pursuit of inward peace begins with a perspective of joy. 
that makes the Lord our focus. Look at that fourth verse. And notice it says this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now, this scripture, no doubt, is very familiar to you. A lot of us have heard this phrase, uh, this, this statement, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And I wonder how many of us really grasp what's being communicated. Sometimes when we think about rejoicing in the Lord, we think of coming to church with church face on. We have had a rough week. We've had a rough morning. We've been cut off on the way to church. We've let somebody know of our displeasure. We pull into the parking lot. Well, good morning. Isn't it great to be in the house of the Lord together? Church face, right? That's not rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord isn't superficial. It's depth of perspective and understanding. Rejoicing in our circumstances will drive us toward instability. It will cause us to be on a spiritual roller coaster ride where when the circumstances go our way, hey, I'm feeling pretty up, and when they go down, not so much. We will be extremely inconsistent. But when I rejoice in the Lord, in other words, take delight in who he is and in the fact that God is in control of all of my circumstances and he has a purpose in them, then I can face those circumstances and truly rejoice in the Lord. It is making Christ the focus of my life rather than the circumstances around me. And in so doing, I am able to have consistency, stability, peace. Now, sometimes we confuse rejoicing with enjoyment. The scripture is very clear that we are to rejoice in trials, in persecution, in many negative experiences that we would consider to be painful and difficult. But rejoicing in those means that I look at the bigger picture. I don't look at that circumstance in and of itself and say, this is painful. I look at it and yes, I acknowledge it's painful, but I say that there is a loving, wise God behind what's going on in my life and I will rejoice in the Lord and I will make him the focal point of my thoughts rather than the negative emotions that are produced by the circumstances that I'm experiencing at this time. That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. And listen, when we do that consistently, when that becomes descriptive of the way we operate and the way we think, look at the fifth verse. It's going to demonstrate itself outwardly, what's going on inwardly. It says in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now this word reasonableness, it's translated various ways in other translations. For instance, the New English translation says gentleness. The King James Version, moderation. The Living Bible, unselfish and considerate. And the New American Standard Bible, forbearance. So what does this mean? Listen, when I really get the perspective that God is in control, that I am to rejoice in the Lord, I'll be unflappable. And it will show on the outside. 
I will be able to put up with the differences that I experience with other people in a unique way. I will be able to face circumstances that normally would drive me to despair, and I will bear up under the pressure that I'm experiencing through those circumstances, and it will be evident to those around me. Do you know someone who's unflappable? You see them go through trial after trial after trial, and they remain consistent and strong and focused on the Lord. That is the goal that we're to shoot for. That's what we're to drive toward. God wants us to do this to his glory. And then look at the reasoning behind this. The Lord is at hand. Verse 5, this isn't just an off comment. It's a perspective. The things of this life are temporary. The problem that I'm experiencing is temporary. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again, and that is to be the long view that I take toward the struggles and trials that I experience. So when I look at something and keep it in perspective, this lasts for a while. I don't know how long. I don't know how intense, but there is a loving God behind these things, a wise God behind these things, and he's coming again. That's the perspective that gives me the ability to have forbearance, reasonableness. Now, as we come to the next part of this passage, look at verse 6. And what we find in verses 6 and 7, as we pursue peace inwardly, what we need to do is pray instead of worry. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Worry. Man, is that something we all struggle with. It's so easy to get our minds focused on the concerns and the cares of this life. It's so easy for us to forget that rejoicing in the Lord, the sovereign God who is in control, the fact that He is at hand, He's coming again, and He's going to sort out this messed up world and make it a place that will experience the values and the truths that He has taught throughout His Word because he's going to transform it. All of that can become lost by worry. The Lord Jesus Christ said this in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 25, in his Sermon on the Mount. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then it continues, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Isn't that a great reminder? The Lord Jesus Christ is telling us that, remember, God cares for you. Remember that your worry changes nothing. Remember 
that worry is not to drive your life. The Lord Jesus Christ said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. God is telling us in multiple passages that we are not to focus on worry. So now, wait a minute, Pastor. That's all fine and good that you say don't worry about it. But I can't help it. That's the way I'm wired. That's the way I think. This is what I do. I'm going to worry about stuff. You know what I find? Worry is something that I yield to. It is a thought process and pattern that I give myself over to. And I allow that to become my focus rather than focusing on God. Any focus on our circumstances, concerns, problems, to the exclusion of God, will drive us into deeper worry. We will yield to it, we will give ourselves over to it, we will buy into it, and will become more and more a part of our thought process. What the Word of God is telling us to do is break that cycle. Stop focusing on the problems. And instead, look at what Paul tells us to do in this text. Do not be anxious about anything. And then a strong word of contrast. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer. Three different words are used or prayer in this one text as the solution to our worry. And so what God is calling us to do is this. Go immediately to prayer when those concerns present themselves. You know what we usually do? i got to figure this out. I know there's a way to get out of this problem. And so we work at it. We strive we try to be creative. We come up with ideas as to how to find a solution. And when all of that plays out, I'd better pray about this. What the Word of God is telling us is prayer should be the first response to worry. When those anxious thoughts invade your thinking, stop. Turn to God. Go to Him in prayer. These words that are used for prayer, prayer is a word in the original language that means worship. It carries with it the idea of just coming before God. But it's also the idea of a perspective, that, that I am approaching the Almighty God, that I am speaking to the Creator, that I am coming before Him to remember who He is and what He does. I am laying before my God in submission that's the idea of prayer. Sometimes we think of prayer as bending God's will to ours. In reality, prayer is about us understanding who God is 
and changing our thinking and our perspective to match up with what God has revealed in His truth. God wants us to come to Him in that kind of prayer. Now, supplication. Very simply, that is asking God for His supply. And I'm thankful that the Word of God calls us to do that. I am to come to God and say, God, these are the needs that I have, and I will trust you to work those needs in my life to accomplish your purpose and your will. But there's an important perspective when it comes to supplication. Those things that we ask God to supply for us, sometimes, and rightly so, the answer will be no. And when God says no, it is for our good and His purpose. And we need to be ready for that. See, when I'm disappointed with God, that means I wanted to call the shots. That means I had a better idea. That means I'm not coming, seeking to have God transform me and work His will in the situation and in my life. It means I want my way, and I want it now. The last one, with thanksgiving. You know, as we pray, we should always pray with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving communicates the idea that I love that song Kimo and the worship team did a little while ago. Uh, you've never failed me. <laughs> that, that's what Thanksgiving does. It looks back and it reflects on the things that God has done in the past. And we give thanks for what He has done. And it's a perspective builder. Hey, I've made it this far. And this new worry will be resolved just like all of the old worries that God has taken care of. He's watched over me all the way and I give thanks to Him for that. Gratitude is a perspective that's essential to us as believers. It's stopping and looking at God and being grateful for what He's done in our lives. Not looking with disappointment and saying, hey, that didn't work out the way that I wanted it to. But stopping and looking, saying, God, you are good and you're good to me and I worship you. That changes our perspective. Listen, when we look at things and we pick at them and we say, God could have done this, God should have done this, you know what we're doing? We're setting ourselves up above God. We're saying, I know better. Gratitude reminds us that God knows everything. He loves us and he has a purpose and a plan for us that is unfolding. Then verse 7. Listen, when we pray, instead of worry, look at what happens. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a great promise? The Word of God is reminding us that when I have right thought processes of abandoning worry and moving toward prayer and thanksgiving and rejoicing in the Lord, then I have peace. And I love the way this is described. It surpasses all understanding. As I've seen mature believers that follow the principles of this passage, I see people respond to them all the time like, I don't, I don't understand how they do it. I, I, I don't get it. I don't see what, what makes them tick. They're amazing. How do they do that? 
It is the peace of God. God's peace transcends my understanding. And that's the point I think we really need to take away from this. Stop trying to manage and fix and direct things and draw from what God freely gives, his peace, when we approach things in God's way. The text also says this, that this peace of God, it surpasses all understanding, but it will also guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is a guard? When you think about the time in which this was written, the guard was someone who would be outside the city or on the city wall, and he would protect the city from invaders. That was his primary job. What the Word of God is telling us is this. Those thoughts that can invade our thinking and cause us to lose perspective and to forget who God is. As I focus on Him, that is my guard to keep those invading thoughts from coming into my mind and bringing me into a place that I ought not to be. God wants us to live that kind of life. That's what He has designed us to experience. That is what He has called us to as His children. The loving Heavenly Father wants us to have secure minds, strong minds that are in Christ Jesus. Final thought. As we come to verses 8 and 9, and we'll move quickly through these, we find that we're to pursue disciplined thinking because that leads to peace. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, I wish I had more time to develop all of these words, all of these ideas, but let's look at what it says. We need to program our minds with virtuous things. Look at what verse 8 says. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I use this as a litmus test for what I expose myself to. The principle of garbage in, garbage out certainly works with our minds. And so there's a list that the Apostle Paul gives us, and I don't think it's an exhaustive list. These are examples of the kinds of things that we should be thinking about. And look at what some of these things are. First of all, that which is true. In other words, I should be thinking about things that conform to God's revealed truth. This is where we find truth. This is where we discover truth. And I am to use the Scripture as an evaluation for the things of this life and let the Scripture be the lens through which I view things in this world rather than allowing the world to be the lens through which I view Scripture. I'm to think about that which is true. I'm to think about that which is noble. That is, things worthy of respect. I like to frame it this way. These are the things you'd be glad that people knew you thought about. Listen, when you start a thought pattern and, and you know that it's a path that you ought not to be thinking about, think about how you would feel if that, that, that were presented and people could see into your mind and know what you're thinking. How would you feel about that? Well, if it's not something that you would be proud of, jettison it. That which is right. That's thinking about behavior that reflects the moral boundaries that God has put into place. That's thinking about what is right. 
about what is pure. Pure carries with it the idea of unmixed with sin and wickedness. You know, some people think, well, I think mostly pure thoughts. We need to up the ante on that. We need to think pure thoughts all the time. I use this illustration. Somebody gives, gives you a, a nice bottle of water. I had an Aquafina bottle this morning. Now suppose they unscrew the lid and take a dropper of raw sewage and drop it into my bottled water and screw the lid back on and hand it to me. Am I going to drink that? It's defiled. It's gross. Somebody might look at that and say, well, hey, it's 99.9% pure. <laughs> Why not? God wants us to think pure thoughts, those that conform to him. Lovely, not so much in the sense of lovely and beautiful, but in the sense of that which promotes love. Admirable, that which lifts us up to be better. Excellent, that which conforms to the highest of standards. And then praiseworthy, that which reflects well on God and leads to his glory. This is how God wants us to program our thinking. And a question we need to ask ourselves is this, what am I programming my mind with? By media, by music, by movies, by all of those things, what is going into my mind? Will it enhance my view of God and my thinking, or will it detract from it? Final thought. We need to put into practice what we've learned. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Some of us think spirituality is a warehouse of knowledge. If I can come in with a lot of theological concepts and I can say really important theological things, then I'm spiritual. The Word of God tells us that there is more to our spiritual life than a warehouse of knowledge. It's putting into practice the things that we've learned. James said this, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and he goes away at once, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all he does. I think the greatest key to finding the peace of God is not only looking at the principles of these truths, but practicing these truths. That's how we experience true intimacy with the God of peace. Short-circuiting these things will drive us away from the God of peace. Well, I so appreciate the last three weeks that I've been able to minister the word here. What a blessing to be with you. Um, again, very much feel that this is my church home away from home, and you have made me feel that way, and I so thank you for that. 
pray for God's richest blessing for you as a church, and I am thankful for what God is doing here in his work here on Cape Cod. Thank you.